Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Next Monday is April 15th, a date known across the country as Tax Day. Traditionally, the House of Representatives takes up tax-related legislation to commemorate the day, and this year is no different. Democrats are also formally pushing to get President Trump's tax returns. Welcome to Bloomberg Government's Suspending the Rules. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. We'll have more on the tax push in the second segment. First, though, the other side of the budget coin, spending. The House this week is scheduled to vote on a bill to increase the statutory caps on spending for two years. Here to discuss are BGov legislative analyst Michael Smallberg and budget and appropriations reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to you both. Thanks for having us. Before we dive into the bill, we need to be clear this is not a budget resolution. Jack, what's the difference between what we're looking at this week and a budget resolution, and and why isn't the House actually pursuing the formal resolution? Yeah, I've actually heard some very knowledgeable people kind of misspeak about what this even is. It's a piece of legislation that the president would have to sign into law that would raise the spending caps that were created under the Budget Control Act. Uh, That is what you hear sequestration when you hear people worrying about sequestration. It imposed very low spending caps, and Congress has raised those spending caps statutorily with pieces of legislation. It's not a budget resolution. It's a bill to basically undo the damage they would do if they followed those spending caps. In the House, there's not a budget resolution yet. There is one in the Senate, but it doesn't really take a position on what the spending levels should be. It sets the spending levels at the low budget cap levels and then mentions the ability to raise those with a separate bill. And other than a mention of President Trump's $750 billion defense request, it doesn't really say anything about what those should be. So we're taking sort of a non-traditional approach to setting the top line numbers with this bill rather than a budget resolution. Right. The BCA kind of the, the idea of budget caps and sequestration is a relatively new phenomenon. Can you just for anyone who, who wasn't paying attention over the last few years, when did the BCA come in? And, and Yeah, the BCA came in in 2011 and they have done typically bipartisan agreements to raise those caps. It was always in two-year segments by equal amounts, raising defense and non-defense by the same amount until the last one in March or February 2018 when they raised them for fiscal 18 and 19 and gave a bigger increase to defense than non-defense. That's kind of to be expected because it was a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and White House. Now Democrats are saying parity should come back. It should be equal. Other than the sort of left-wing progressive House Democrats who have said we should actually increase non-defense significantly more and maybe spend equal amounts on domestic priorities and the military. Right, because the BCA set a slightly higher cap for defense than for non-defense. Yes, so by default, defense would be higher if you go with this parity sort of system that they've imposed unofficially, you would leave defense higher. And then if you are a critic of military spending and want to see equal amounts being spent for the military and non-military spending, you would want to see a significantly larger, I think it would be 33 billion more in the increase for non-defense than the defense cap. Let's dive into the numbers and the bill itself a little bit more. Um, Michael, you want to tell us what's going on there? Sure. So this bill would, uh, as Jack mentioned, raise those discretionary 
caps for fiscal 2020 and 2021, and it would cancel the uh, automatic reductions that are supposed to kick in to reduce those numbers even further. As he said, there would be basically about equal increases on the defense and non-defense side, so it would restore that that parity. There would be about $360 billion more spending overall compared to what the levels would be under the current caps with the anticipated reductions that would take place over the next two years. The Budget Control Act did also allow for some other types of spending that are effectively exempt from the caps, so that includes overseas contingency operations or war funding. Uh, This bill would keep that level um, flat at $69 billion. So when you include that, actually the total defense number would be $733 billion. Uh, Just to put that in context, the White House uh, asked for $750 billion, uh, but they propose actually funding, you know, a lot of that through cap-exempt funds, through OCO and emergency uh, amounts. And on the non-defense side, this bill would also allow certain types of cap-exempt funding. For example, there would be $400 million in fiscal 2020 that would go towards IRS tax enforcement. The idea there being the money you invest up front there would recover even more through what the government would collect uh, from those who have underpaid their taxes. Uh, The bill would also allow for $7.5 billion in cap-exempt funding on the 2020 census. Now, of course, Republicans and Democrats will both find some reasons to to criticize this bill. Uh, Republicans are concerned, for for example, about the fact that this measure doesn't include any cost offsets, any any provisions that would reduce mandatory spending to offset the increased uh, discretionary caps. Democrats, of course, want more um, domestic spending relative to the defense levels. And for example, to cover things like transportation, uh, opioid abuse, uh, and veterans health care. So, you know, we may still see kind of a fight uh, on both sides as this heads to the floor. I, I want to dive into OCO really briefly for a second, because when the president's budget came out, there was some controversy over the his planned use of OCO funds, war funds, which are supposed to be for these overseas contingencies, not for really day-to-day operations. Does this bill have anything to do with how the OCO funds would be used like that, or is it just these are the accounts that get OCO funds. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. They, in their budget proposal, basically said, let's not do a budget caps deal. Let's leave the caps for non-defense and defense where they are, and then use OCO entirely to provide for a significant increase in defense funding. Per your description of what OCO is supposed to be, that's not the, the traditional use of OCO. This clearly wasn't a proposal for emergency funding. This was a, a sort of an end around to get out of a budget caps deal and to get out of really the political requirement to increase non-defense spending. So, of course, both chambers would have to agree on any changes to the budget caps. What's happening over in the Senate? Not a lot with the budget caps. They have, as I mentioned, produced a budget resolution. It doesn't really take a stance on what the spending levels should be, and they're not sure yet if they're going to take that to the floor because they're waiting to see what happens with the House. So the House Democrats are taking the lead on a budget caps deal. And meanwhile, the Republican-controlled Senate is doing a little more to stand behind Trump. It looks like they are favoring the $750 billion defense spending figure. That's not necessarily official, but Richard Shelby, the appropriations chairman, said that he likes that $750 billion figure more than the $733 billion figure that the House Democrats had. They will have to figure out sometime in the near future what they're going to be marking their spending bills up to. 
and we don't have clear guidance yet from the Senate on a bill to raise the budget caps or really a very clear budget resolution. So they're going to have to figure something out among the appropriators and among leadership. And meanwhile, we'll see if the House Democrats can kind of take a strong negotiating position by passing this budget cap bill on the House floor. And if the two sides can't come to a deal, let's remember that we are heading now into the appropriation season. So we are going to see um, appropriators starting to write those individual bills, perhaps without some of those top line caps in place. Uh, We may not actually see a deal on the spending caps until later in the year, perhaps something uh, tied to a measure to to increase uh, the debt limit. And because of that, you're going to see the House and Senate basically take two different tracks in how they mark up their bills and have bills that add up to different numbers, which really uh, may not seem like a big deal now, but it's going to make it a lot harder to come up with a final deal in the end of September or beyond if there's a CR, considering they will have been working with different top lines. So it seems like we may have another perfect storm of issues coming to a head at the end of the fiscal year. Thanks, Jack and Michael, for helping us follow this issue. Find all of their work and even more budget coverage at BGov.com. We'll be right back to look at the legislative slate ahead of tax day. The House is scheduled this week to take up a tax and IRS package, and Democrats have started the process to obtain President Trump's unreleased tax returns. Sarah Babbage covers tax for the BGov legislative analyst team, and Laura Davison is a tax reporter for Bloomberg News. They join us now. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks. Let's start with what's happening this week. The House plans to vote on a large tax administration bill that has bipartisan support. Sarah, what are the big things we need to know about this one? So you're right. This is a broad, bipartisan, bicameral bill that's been developed over several years. It's really focused on modernizing the IRS. That includes things like the IRS's IT, stepping up its cybersecurity to deal with things like identity theft, as well as making more services electronic. So an example of that is lawmakers love to criticize the IRS for still using fax machines. It's definitely been something you know that commentators as well will criticize, but under the bill, the Congress is trying to shift the IRS away from that a little bit by allowing or requiring the IRS to have an online system to verify people's incomes. And that could be really helpful to online lenders, meaning that they could make loans to people in a matter of hours instead of the days that it currently takes now to fill out a paper form, fax it off, and get a response. Now, the question about all of this kind of modernizing the agency's IT is it doesn't appropriate money for the agency. So whether they'll be able to do stuff with their current resources remains to be seen. The House passed many of these provisions in the last Congress. Why hasn't it made it into law yet? So something that was controversial in the several bills that the House passed last year that included these provisions is a restriction on the use of private debt collectors. So the bill from last year would not allow the IRS to assign the tax debts of low-income people with incomes of 250% of the federal poverty line or less to private debt collectors. Um, There's concerns that maybe private debt collectors are too focused on low-income people and they don't give them as many kind of repayment options as the IRS. This was something that was controversial with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Finance Committee Leader, well now Senate Finance Committee Leader Chuck Grassley. Uh, They both have 
private debt collectors in their state. And there's also some concerns that this would lose some money for the IRS. So in this new bill, the threshold of incomes that they can refer to private debt collectors is reduced. So really only the lowest income people would no longer be referred to private debt collectors. And it seems like that's a satisfactory compromise for everyone. There are a few tax-related proposals from the last couple of years that are not included in this bill. What didn't make it into the package? There's, yeah, there's still a lot hanging out there for Congress to deal with on taxes. And we thought maybe uh, in the lead up to the uh, 2018 tax filing deadline, we might see some of these things addressed. And this includes expired tax provisions that are called tax extenders, as well as technical corrections to the 2017 overhaul. So for example, there was an unintentional glitch in how long it takes restaurants and retailers to write off their the cost of their renovations, which has made um, renovating more expensive for them. So things like that we were thinking maybe would be attached to this bill, but they were not. So still hanging out there for later in the year. What are the next steps? Um, do we expect this to be enacted soon? It's quite possible since, as I said, it's broadly supported. And Chuck Grassley said that it could actually go straight to the Senate floor instead of being marked up in the Finance Committee because lawmakers have kind of already compromised behind the scenes on it. So if there's room in the Senate calendar, it's definitely something they could take up and then send to President Trump. Last week, House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal sent a letter to the IRS demanding six years of President Trump's tax returns, as well as those of some businesses in the Trump organization. Laura, one thing that I thought was interesting about this was the way Neal framed his demand. It didn't say it was targeted at the president directly, but was more about IRS oversight. Yeah, so this is what uh, the product of what Richie Neal has been working on for, for several months with uh, the committee's lawyers. And basically what they said in the letter is, we want to make sure that the president and his businesses are being audited properly. All of the presidents and vice presidents um, get Get an annual special presidential audit just to make sure there's uh, nothing incorrect going on. And, and what Richie Neal said in his request is, is we want to um, basically conduct our, our legislative oversight and, and make sure this is happening properly. Now, Republicans have been very, very critical of this. And they said, look, if you want to make sure that presidents are being audited properly, you should have asked for President Obama's, George W. Bush's. You should have gone back several years. Just looking at one president isn't legitimate. And so Chairman Neal has been under pressure since January to uh, push for the president's tax returns. You know, why did he wait until now or April to, to ask for them? So Richard Neal's stated reason uh, behind this is that he wanted to make sure he had a sound legal argument. So it's pretty clear in the tax code that the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Senate Finance, as well as the Joint Committee on Taxation, all have the authority to ask for the tax return of, of any taxpayer, and that includes the president. But Neal said he wanted to make sure that, that he was on solid legal ground. He anticipated that this will go into some sort of legal battle and he, he wanted to have sort of paperwork and, and documentation to to beef up his request. Now he's been frankly uh, you know a little bit criticized from from people on the on the more progressive side of his party both in Congress and outside groups who said look you know this is going to take a while why delay let's get going you know it is noteworthy that the Mueller report was was finalized you know just a couple weeks prior and uh, didn't really seem to include much on on the tax front you know we still haven't seen that but I think finally that was sort of a breaking point for for Democrats to say okay we need to pull the trigger here. We heard from President Trump earlier this year when there was, you know, Democrats took over and there was talk about, you know, getting his tax returns that the Republicans would fight back against 
Democrats who sort of demand these things. What kind of pushback are, are you expecting from the administration? Pushback from from all angles and, and really uh, multiple strategies. So, you know, you've already seen Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin um, laying the groundwork, you know, for several weeks saying that he has concerns, uh, privacy concerns. Uh, you see uh, congressional Republicans saying that this um, opens the floodgates, that there could be, uh, you know, targeting of certain taxpayers, you know, essentially harassing them through this uh, portion of the tax code. And you saw Mick Mulvaney, uh, you know, the president's uh, chief of staff over the weekend say Democrats are never going to see these tax returns. So I think there will be delay as well as um, fighting back legally. There was a letter um, sent late Friday from someone representing the president saying that Neil doesn't have a case here. So there's going to be a multifaceted approach. And I could see that this would drag on for for months, if not years. If the tax returns do come out, nobody's quite sure what they'll reveal. Laura, your reporting has indicated there's a chance they don't actually show us much at all. Well, it depends what the question. If you want to know, you know, kind of specifics about the Trump and his businesses for those years, you can get a certain amount of detail. But if you want to know how wealthy the president is, for example, that won't be in there. It just show, you know, tax returns will just show income for those years. And and tax returns can be a little bit tricky because a lot of, you know, all debt and all income is is aggregated into one single line. So if, you know, if you're looking for something, you know, payment to Russia, there's not a line on a tax reform for that. That won't be showed. So if these do come out, it'll take a lot of, you know, tax and legal experts looking at the tax returns, as well as his financial disclosures, maybe if there's any public filings available from court cases, and it'll be a little bit of a triangulation to, to put together the, the complete financial picture of the president. Thanks, Sarah and Laura. That's our show. We will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.